When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 19 in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, June the 11th. First, I'll be talking to Frank Restuccio founder and global CEO at Finder. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about the outlook for the Australian economy. But now, let's talk to Frank Restuccio. Frank, tell us about this GoBear acquisition. I'd love to. So GoBear has had enormous amount of uh, effort being put into its its growth and in the order of 97 million USD actually over its, its history. And its mission is to help people in that Southeast Asian region to improve their finances and their well-being. And that mission actually aligns very, very closely with uh, Finder's mission. So over the last five years, they've been building that, 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 that service in seven key markets in that, in that region. And so we've been watching the, the brand and we've uh, long admired its success. Unfortunately, though, through COVID, they were quite reliant on travel insurance as a vertical, and that obviously tailed away quite quickly. And unfortunately, they didn't quite get the growth that they needed uh, to sustain, I guess, their their current operating model. So when we heard about this, I thought that it was actually an opportunity for us to actually pick up the baton in the region and deliver on that mission that they were trying to achieve. And of course, uh, Finder 
throughout its history has had a, a global mindset and ambition too. And we've actually got a number of a number of people actually working in, in Southeast Asia. And actually our service has been live as well in the region for the last three years. So I saw it as a, a complementary business for us to, to acquire and to merge with and uh, progress on that mission to help people make better decisions. Now, what are their markets? Uh, what, Singapore, Hong Kong, Vietnam? Exactly, yeah. Their main markets uh, are Singapore, Hong Kong, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, and the Philippines. And uh, yeah, as I said, they're headquartered in Singapore, so that was their main market. Okay, and it, and it very much fits in with Finder's uh, model, doesn't it? It really does. When I saw it and I saw some of the material and some of the commentary, it was so similar. I, I felt a real strong alignment with with the brand and I knew that therefore the customers that were using GoBear would be very well aligned to what our, our new service will, will be in that region for them. So that was the real main attraction for me that there was just such an amazing alignment on the mission. Well, it's also expanding your market massively, isn't it? I mean, Southeast Asia is home to something like 440 million. Exactly. And what's actually really interesting is that so many of those people are actually unbanked. So, of course, there's a lot of sophistication as well in those markets too, but so many of them are unbanked. And I see that as a great opportunity to educate them along their their journey of trying to make great financial decisions. And also, um, there's this great opportunity as well. Uh, everyone's holding a mobile device these days, and, and that's where we're going as well. We're really putting a lot of effort into our mobile application and the Finder app. We've launched in Australia. We're about to launch in the UK and then around to the US. And then following that, we'll be launching that app through Southeast Asia. So uh, I see a great opportunity for those customers in that region to benefit from the Finder app and in their mobile device. So we're bringing that, that service straight into their mobile and we see, I see a great opportunity for, for us and for them actually. Uh, and that's a massive motivation for this acquisition. How many verticals does Finder actually have? So we pride ourselves on being that one-stop shop for people. And so we have actually over a hundred categories uh, on offer primarily in our Australian markets, but increasingly now so in the UK and US. But yeah, we, we really compare everything from, you know, your home loan, your your savings products, your insurances, your utilities, some of your retail decisions, uh, some of the travel-based decisions that you that you make as well. So we're really, we want to get that, that full com- complete picture of you. And then all those verticals, we, we go deep in as well. And we, yeah, help you make those decisions across those categories. Well, the categories would include things like credit cards and home loans. Yes, uh, big focus on the banking verticals. That's where we sort of launched our, our story, Leon. We, we started off in the banking in Australia, helping people make better decisions with their credit cards and home loans and personal loans. Uh, but now, of course, we, we delve into uh, all sorts of different things. And cryptocurrencies being something that we put a lot of focus in over recent years. That's been very, very popular. People are very you know, happy with the fact that we're there to help educate them and also give them some options to go and purchase the, the different uh, uh, coins. Uh, trading accounts is actually something that's quite strong as well for us now. We really feel like we've helped people save money over the years, but now we also want to help them grow their wealth and actually help them in, take some of those savings and invest for the future in things like uh, shares and crypto and, and, and actual property assets as well that comes into it as well. So how long has Finder been going for? So we, we actually launched in 2006 uh, in a very nascent way, a very organic way. We really started to get going in 2009. That's when we really put the foot on the accelerator. So we've been going over a decade and uh, we're actually just about to come up on our 15th anniversary in July. So we're looking forward to celebrating that. 
15 years. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Well, we still feel like we're just starting, Leon. So uh, we're building this uh, brand and the, and the service to live beyond our lifetimes. That's that's the motivation for, for me personally, is that I want my children and, and their children to be able to experience the service and to get that great utility and satisfaction of being able to get some advice, use some of the tools that we provide and and really make some amazing decisions that are going to transform and help them live their their life. And so, yeah, 15 years may seem like a long time to me. It's just the beginning. It may sound a bit odd to say this, Leon, but we're really gearing up for a thousand year old company. And yeah, it's a very ambitious goal, of course, but that's it. That's what we're, that's, what, that's why I wake up every day to help, help build and achieve that. Well, I mean, how many, how many countries do you operate in? We operate in 80 markets at the moment. So a lot of our categories are globally nature. And that's how we describe them, where the product is quite analogous across the region. So an example are things like uh, trading stocks or cryptocurrencies or retail. Those are some of the decisions that everyone makes all around the world. Of course, people still make decisions around credit cards and health insurance, et cetera, but those ones tend to be a bit more localized. So what we've really done is focus on those global niches to help expand our footprint around the world. So yeah, 80 countries now. And so, but you have offices in 80 countries or? No. So we have offices in seven countries, uh, Australia, US, UK, Poland, Philippines, Canada. And uh, yeah, so that's our footprint. So where we have our, our crew, we also have distributed crew around the world. There's around 20 countries where we have people currently. Um, but of course, we use some of those those countries to then launch into those other markets. So so what's ahead for Finder over the next, uh, well, over the next 15 years? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... We still obviously put our, keep our sights on the, the short term as much as we, I think about and we think about the long term. So over the next 12 months, we're really, really focused on just improving and developing our product for our customers. So primarily that's going to be built around the Finder app. So presently, as I said earlier, we've, we've really launched in a big way here in Australia and, and looking to increase that and make that a better and better service for our customers. But following that around to the United Kingdom. Now we have a team over there that's going to obviously localize and support that uh, product launch into that market and then across into the States. So those are the three key markets for us and that we're really, really focused on. Of course, there's plenty of other activity going on uh, day to day, but yeah, our, our focus is on that. And uh, we believe that with the advent of things like open banking, with the proliferation of new products and services coming to the market every single day, that there's a lot of work for us to do, but we are here to simplify that for customers. We're here to help them and ultimately deliver those savings and those opportunities to, to grow their wealth. What is a big growth here? Yeah, look, I think uh, the... The things that people are increasingly wanting to learn more and more about are things like how do I how do I in this yo, low yield environment you know if you think about you know savings rates around the world are really really low and so people are looking to for options how do I how do I take my savings and how do I take my income and how do I transform that into to wealth and they're the categories that are really growing really quickly for us um, as I mentioned crypto trading accounts those sorts of areas are are, are a real big focus for us. So crypto will be a big focus for you over the next few years. Yeah, look, it, 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 it's one of those things where it's changing the world of finance so rapidly that we'd be remiss not to really keep on top of it. And in fact, we were one of the early adopters of uh, helping people make those types of decisions. Um, way back in 2016, 17, we really went hard at that. We actually built a, I'm not sure, a little known fact, we actually built a, a brand called HiveX which was a over-the-counter brokerage that traded to help people trade large volumes of crypto. And what we learned from that experience was, yeah, how to deal with, you know, all the processes behind the scenes and KYCing people and 
um, AML and, and so forth, Oztrack, et cetera. We learned a lot through that experience. We subsequently actually, uh, someone wanted to acquire that, that brokerage and we actually uh, sold it. Um, but what we did do is retain obviously a lot of the, the knowledge around the space. And now we're looking to bridge the, the gap, I think for a lot of people, a lot of consumers out there that don't really fully understand cryptocurrencies, but they actually really want to put some of their wealth and some of their, their income toward purchasing Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever it might, might be. And so we're, we're, we're trying to create that bridge between the really difficult aspects of getting into the space and the everyday consumer looking to, to, to try to participate. So that's where we're applying our, our skills and, and our experience to help people with that. Well, I'd imagine that's going to grow because all the central banks around the world are looking at developing digital currencies, and that's going to be huge. Yeah, look, I think actually the, a lot of the governments that, certainly that we interact with have a very, very strong bias towards innovation. And I think that crypto is an evolving thing for regulators around the world to try to get their heads around. But my attitude to it is that it actually creates a, a new world of possibilities for participants, for consumers to try to do things differently, to use technologies like blockchain to, to make things more accurate and to, more, to make things more transparent and to sort of break down some of those walls and, and those legacies that exist in the banking world in particular yeah, I think it's a, a tremendous, we're, we're really still at the cusp of major, major change. And we're just starting to see, I think, that that mainstream acceptance of crypto. And yeah, I guess that's why we're so so passionate about supporting consumers to, to better understand it and to to participate in, the, in that whole new evolution. Well, Frank, more strength to find his arm. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Leon. And now let's talk to IFM Investors economist, Alex Joyner. Well, Alex, the economy grew 1.8% according to the latest GDP. It seems to have recovered quite well, but there are some reservations about it. What are your views? Indeed, there are reservations. I think you know we can be swept up in, in some of the good numbers first because it is a good narrative that we have. We have recovered uh, as an economy much better than most other economies. There's a few notable exceptions, uh, China being one of those, but the Australian economy is 0.8% larger than it was in real GDP terms in Q4 2019. So we have, in that sense, recovered from the COVID recession. The median outturn uh, for the for global economies, say the top sort of 40 or 50 global economies is still minus 1.9% smaller than they were in, in 2019. So haven't fully recovered in terms of GDP levels. So Australia has been effective in managing the public health crisis. It, it has had appropriate policies from the Reserve Bank and, and the government on the fiscal side. Um, so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised at, at this outcome. You know, we have pretty much thrown 17% of GDP at the economy for it to recover. So it has come with a bit of a cost. Uh, and we have very, very low interest rates that are arguably, arguably creating some imbalances in the rest of the economy. How we exit those settings will be the big challenge, I think, to growth. Uh, and I think the GDP numbers sort of allude to some of these things because, you know, we, we do have growth that is fueled by cash balances, basically on, on the household side of uh, the national accounts. So they're being sort of run down in an environment of, of still weak wages growth and still weak income growth. So we're sort of reliant on stimulus in that sense. We have dwelling investment that has been uh, very strong, but again, reliant on you know government initiatives, the home builder 
program being notable uh, among those. Uh, it was interesting alterations and additions rather than new houses drove dwelling investment growth. So people uh, using that home builder scheme and then business investment. This is the big one for me because there was a lot made of a pretty strong outturn in business investment in the quarter. It was a, it was a, one, a, a stronger number than we'd seen for a, for a long time. But then you look at where business investment is heading into this crisis and where it ended up during the crisis at the lowest proportion of GDP in a non-mining sense, or in almost the history of that series, you sort of think, well, it, it should rebound. Uh, we should be seeing a rebound. You know, the government is incentivizing businesses to invest through uh, instant asset write-offs and in initiatives like that. So we should be seeing these sorts of things. It's just how... Can we sustain this going forward? We're going to get some big base effects. We're going to be see some big year-on-year -year numbers in terms of growth in the next two or three quarters. But how do we sustain it into, say, 2022 and, and beyond that? And that's where I get a little bit more concerned because, you know, we haven't done anything to make the economy better in terms of productivity, uh, you know, business investment, entrepreneurship in the economy, you know, incentivizing people to, to do more. We've only allowed the economy to recover. And like I said, that's a good thing, but we really need to do more on policy if we're going to sustain uh, levels of growth that we want to see. Now, one of the things you've always pointed out is that our economy has actually grown sometimes like 1.5% because of immigration. Mm -hmm. And but immigration was completely flat, totally flat. And so where does that leave us with growth? Well, that was exactly right. It was one of the weakest quarterly uh, population growth numbers, and that's obviously not surprising. You know, the borders are, are closed, so that, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, and the economy still grew without that population growth. But then again, that speaks to the medium-term challenges around what we've been reliant on previously in terms of our growth rates. Like you said, 1.5% growth was pretty much standard in the Australian economy in the years, five years leading up to the COVID recession. And we became reliant on it. Obviously, the per capita numbers were much, much weaker. Per, you know, we, we did have a, you know, a per capita GDP recession through that period. And the, the big question for me is, are we going to go back to that 1.5% paradigm? Now, you know, there was a sneaky, um, well, sneaky, I say sneaky, um, there was a section in the budget that was away from the uh, standard economic forecast chapters that had uh, the government's expectations for net overseas migration. And they are pretty much going back to the levels that we saw prior to the COVID recession uh, in the years after. So this is sort of in the 2020, 24, 25 out years. So getting back to importing people and those people going back into the labour market. And so I worry that we're going back to our old growth model in the first instance, which is to rely on just a bigger economy and not a better economy, and that we do that through population growth. And I also get concerned around the labour market because labour supply was one of the things that made it a, a very difficult task for the Reserve Bank to get the unemployment rate below 5%. Um, now, we're making very good progress on the labour market. Uh, you know, the last uh, month's data was a bit of a setback because we had a, a decline in employment due to seasonal factors and arguably the, the JobKeeper program ending. We're making a lot of progress because we don't have that labour supply coming on. You know, working age population growth is very, very weak. It's basically just people ageing into uh, becoming working age rather than importing people. So net overseas migration basically all goes into the labour market. That's how Australia's immigration program works. 
And what we will have is a situation where that recovers very, very strongly when we've probably got the unemployment rate at around four and three quarter percent, maybe a little bit above, according to the government's forecast and the Reserve Bank's forecast. Now, we probably need it a little bit lower to start getting this wages growth that everyone wants uh, and to have sustainable wages growth. So, you know, we're going to be in this situation where we're approaching the Reserve Bank's objectives on unemployment. And then we're going to open the floodgates again on labour supply. So that will be a big challenge, I think, over coming years on just how we sort of digest that or if we have a conversation about it. We, we don't really have a conversation about uh, population growth. Uh, it's, it's a difficult one to have on occasion, but we are just assuming we go back to that old paradigm and, and I get concerned that uh, it will be the old paradigm on growth as well and we will have uh, an economy that is pretty much how it was in 2019 and that wasn't great uh it wasn't no no one would suggest the australian economy was flying before this recession indeed and uh i mean you talk about wages but uh in the u.s they, got, they had to get unemployment below three percent for or well, around that, three percent to uh for it to affect start affecting wages and that's exactly right similar here yes so this is the thing that and again i i question this so central banks use the paradigm of, of the Phillips curve and that if we can get the unemployment rate down far enough, then we should be able to force businesses because they can't get labour supply to put up wages and bid for, bid for labour. Uh, and that's pretty much the, the, what every central bank tries to do because that's what every central bank can do with interest rates. You can affect demand um, and you can make demand so strong that you draw people into the labour market and tighten it up. And, and wages come through that. But I think in the absence of productivity growth, that, that is a, a much more difficult challenge. And that's why you have to see central banks aim for these exceptionally low unemployment rates that are difficult to get and even more difficult to sustain because productivity growth is absent. You know, it, you think about it, it is much easier for a business to give wage uh, increases if their workers are producing more. Because, you know, they can produce more, they sell more, you know, you make more profit and you can recycle that into paying people more. Um, if you simply force or try to force businesses through the absence of labour to uh, put up wages, then businesses might look for alternatives. They might look for different types of labour. They might look for capital investment to replace that labour. There's all sorts of things that are coming out of this that are, I, I don't think have been resolved and won't be resolved from monetary policy. And we're sort of starting to see some of this because, you know, getting back to population growth and that being very, very weak, there are skill shortages in the Australian economy. And, you know, we talk about how there are large amounts of vacancies in jobs, but we still have an unemployment rate that is above where we want it. How, how do we reconcile that? Well, um, businesses aren't paying higher wages to attract that labour in. And there are skill shortages. Uh, sorry, there are uh, skills mismatches. So the people that are unemployed aren't necessarily skilled enough or have the correct skills to go into those jobs that are vacant. So we have a situation where, you know, there are increasing calls for, for borders to be opened up sooner so we can address those skill shortages. But again, that gets to back to the fact that businesses don't want to pay higher wages or pay for uh, those skills to be attained by the workers that are sort of uh, uh, remain unemployed. So it's a, a difficult paradigm to solve from the Reserve Bank's perspective alone with lower interest rates. Um, you know, I think the government really has to come to the party to continue this, you know, 
impetus that we have with business investment uh, to get the productivity outcomes and make it a little bit more easy for businesses to pass on wage growth uh, on a sustainable basis rather than just trying to force them through the lack of labour supply? Uh, well, the other interesting part about the figures was we had a large rise in the number of savings. Yes, yeah, so the, the savings ratio, as we measure it in, in the national accounts, remained pretty high. It was uh, it came in about 11.6%. Uh, it came down a little bit 12, from 12.2%, uh, but it's very, very high. That's a very, very high level of savings. And it has been the narrative from a, a lot of economists and the expectations of the Reserve Bank that people run down that savings. And that's really something that keeps the economy going over the next couple of quarters in the absence of wages growth and incomes growth. So people's accumulated savings, and this comes from transfer payments, obviously, from the JobKeeper program and, and alike, but also the fact that people can't spend overseas. So we have sort of this trapped uh, money. So people not spending on their, um, say, overseas holiday and are spending that money or saving it uh, in Australia. I guess that narrative hasn't really been seen to play out as yet. Uh, often after recessions and after economic shocks, it takes a very, very long time for the savings ratio to go down. So do people to become comfortable in running down those savings? I think what we need to see is a lot more job security. So the unemployment rate get lower and people get sort of some, some security around their, their employment. So they're, they're willing to run down their savings. That sort of is what played out after the global financial crisis. And I expect that to happen again. It's just whether it happens with a rush. You know, retail sales hasn't, you know, shot the lights out by any extent. And it will become more difficult to, to assess that. And, and households, at least in Victoria, will be a little bit more, I think, reluctant to run down their savings because of the uncertainty. You know, you look at the Victorian lockdowns now, it's gone for two weeks, hopefully, well, going for two weeks, and hopefully that will be the, the end of it. But a lot of small businesses are households. Um, and, and, you know, so they're saving on the household side because their business is under pressure. And, you know, lockdowns and, and this feeds into, you know, the vaccination rollout and these sorts of things. You know, we still have a lot of uncertainty around the economy. You know, we all want to talk about recovery, uh, but there's uncertainty in the economy. And if that uncertainty doesn't lift, then the household savings ratio will remain uh, elevated. And that means things like retail sales rely on wage growth, which is weak. So they'll go back to a sort of a normal level of growth after experiencing some pretty outsized growth that we've seen in the retail sector over the last 12 months that will just go back to, again, 2019, where it was pretty, pretty underwhelming. Well, Alex, that's all very, quite illuminating. And thank you very much for your time again. Pleasure, Leanne. Anytime. So what's happening in the news? Well, business investment rose to a record high in May consolidating gains over the previous two quarters and suggesting a shift in some sectors from post-pandemic rebound to a period of investment and growth. Capital expenditure has recovered to pre-pandemic levels in all non-mining sectors and most industries are now well above their long-run average, according to the latest NAB Business Survey. Overall, business confidence fell slightly, but is still elevated compared to pre-pandemic levels, while business conditions rose to a second consecutive record high for the monthly survey. Trading conditions rose 6 points to be 47 index points. Profitability was also up 6 points to be 40 index points, while employment increased 5 points to be 25 points, all resetting record highs set in April. But in Creditor Watch's latest business risks review, 
Credit defaults increased by 9% in the three months to May against the three months to February this year, and external administrations rose by 24% over the last three months. Businesses urged the Morrison government to cut Australia's 30% company tax rate after the world's biggest developed economies agreed to a global minimum corporate rate of 15% as part of a crackdown on the tech giants. A deal struck at the group of seven finance ministers at the weekend will force large multinationals to pay taxing countries they sell their goods and services in, most notably tech giants such as Google and Facebook. However, tax experts cautioned the agreement was unlikely to deliver a windfall to Australia, raising just hundreds of millions of dollars extra for the federal budget annually. The G7 agreement will go to next month's G20 finance ministers' meeting in Italy, which includes Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, as well as leaders from China, India, Russia and Brazil. It will then feed into the broader deliberations the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development is coordinating with 139 countries for a global tax regime. Business groups, the Business Council of Australia and the Australian Industry Groups, seized on the G7 deal to call on the Morrison government to cut company taxes here. New research has found about 4 million Australians are likely to purchase digital currencies in the next 12 months, including more than a third of millennials. A nationally representative survey of 1,027 Australians by global researcher YouGov, commissioned by cryptocurrency exchange Kraken, found 21% are ready to purchase digital tokens. The percentage increases to 34% of millennials and 32% of Gen Z. Men, 27%, were found to be more likely than women, 14%, to purchase crypto in the next 12 months, while 40% of investors who had sold off their crypto assets indicated they were likely to buy back into the market. The research found one in five Australians have owned cryptocurrency at some point, with 14% currently holding an exposure in their portfolio. Of those, almost 85% indicated they intended to increase their exposure over the next year. On average, Australian crypto owners have 12.5% of their total assets invested in cryptocurrencies, with the vast majority keeping their exposure below a quarter of their portfolio. One in 10 investors held more than 25% of their assets in digital currencies. Wealthier Australians were found to be more likely to own cryptocurrencies, with 47% of respondents with household income in excess of 100000 maintaining an exposure compared to 24% of those with household income of 99000 or below. However, almost 60% of crypto owners said they're likely to sell off some of their exposure in the next 12 months, with 35% very likely to sell some of their crypto assets. And Australia's first sulphate of potash mine will start production this week, and five local mines could be producing the specialty fertiliser inside four years. A new export industry will be born on Monday, when the company Salt Lake Potash declares first production and claims pioneer status ahead of the flock of rivals building sulphate of potash, or SOP mines, on Australia's ephemeral lakes. If all of them deliver to schedule, Australia will go from zero to five SOP mines in the next four years. They hope to snatch a piece of a small but growing industry that is now worth just over US $4 billion, that's $5.2 billion Aussie, a year globally, and is distinct from the US $20 billion plus muriate of potash, or MOP, that BHP is likely to enter this year when it is expected to build a new US $5.7 billion Canadian mine. Though SOP is a small end of the potash industry, it is also the premium end, with farmers typically paying 50% to 100% more for SOP, which is ideal for fertilising crops such as berries, nuts and citrus. And National Australia Bank, Crown Perth and Sky City are all facing the possibility of multi-million dollar penalties for potential breaches of anti-money laundering laws. Crown Perth is now facing a money laundering investigation by Austrac. Sky City Adelaide is also being investigated for potential breaches by the financial crimes regulator. 
and NAB has been referred to Austrac's enforcement team due to potential serious and ongoing non-compliance anti-money laundering laws. In separate statements to the ASX, NAB, Crown and Sky City told investors that they had been referred to Austrac's enforcement team following the identification of potential serious non-compliance with anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing laws. Austrac is a federal financial regulator tasked with preventing organised criminals and terrorists. And terrorists. Crown's casino in Melbourne was already under scrutiny for practices that may have facilitated money laundering. Sky City's Adelaide Casino is under scrutiny for potential failures in the casino's treatment of high-risk and po- politically exposed customers in two periods, July 2015 to June 2016 and July 2018 to June 2019. The casino operator said it was in discussions with Austrac and no decision had yet been taken by the regulator about whether and what enforcement act- action might be taken. NAB said it has publicly disclosed its ongoing discussions with Austrac regarding potential non-compliance since 2017. It added that since June 2017, NAB had spent around $800 million in a multi-year program to improve its fraud and financial crime controls and employed more than 1,200 staff in that area. The bank noted that Austrac had a wide range of enforcement options available to it, including civil penalties of fines, enforceable undertakings where the bank promises to, to do or not to do certain things, infringement notices and remedial actions. And Crown Resorts has avoided paying the Victorian government almost $200 million over the past seven years by classifying marketing costs such as free parking as winnings paid out from poker machines when calculating its gambling tax bill. Victoria's Royal Commission to Crown heard that the casino had been deducting the cost of free accommodation, meals and loyalty scheme points from the money it takes through the 2,628 poker machines at its Melbourne casino since at least 2014. Crown's Executive General Manager of Gaming Machines, Mark Mackay, said that in February this year, Crown Melbourne CEO Xavier Walsh asked him to calculate how much it had saved Crown between 2014 and 2019. Compiled in a spreadsheet entitled Potential Gaming Tax Underpayments, the total came out to $167 million. However, Mr Walsh said the total could be closer to $200 million if the past two years were included. Mr Walsh said Crown believed it was entitled to make the deduction, but he agreed that the spreadsheet exercise had been carried out because of concerns about the ambiguity in the state's gaming tax legislation. Council assisting the inquiry, Jeff Kosminski, said that Crown Melbourne is supposed to pay Victoria gambling tax based on gross gambling revenue, which is the total sum of money received through gambling, minus whatever it pays out as winnings. And the ABC will pay $100,000 to cover Industry Minister Christian Porter's legal and share of mediation costs as part of a settlement after he withdrew a defamation action against a broadcaster. Appearing before a Senate Estimates Committee, ABC Managing Director David Anderson also revealed Mr Porter made two earlier offers to settle the case, but the ABC rejected them. Mr Anderson said the ABC's cost for defending the case had cost taxpayers $680,000. But if the broadcaster did not settle and the case had gone to trial, the exposure to taxpayers could have been as high as $1.5 million. And Qantas has written to four criminal intelligence agencies seeking further details of a disturbing report which alleges organised crime figures have infiltrated the nation's biggest airline. It said no law enforcement agencies have been in contact over the report, but moved to reassure stakeholders that regularly conducted criminal checks on staff and supported intelligence checks from regulators and investigators. The report, known as Project Brunello, and revealed by an investigation from 60 Minutes, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age on Sunday, alleges near 150 Qantas staff have links to criminality and have used their positions to import drugs, among other illegal activities. 
Qantas's freight and baggage handling arms were identified as the divisions at the highest risk of infiltration. And soaring demand for commodities and record iron ore prices have driven a surge in the value of Australian exports to China in the first 12 months of the year, despite tariffs and bans on billions of dollars worth of goods. More broadly, data released on Monday also showed that China's appetite for raw materials at imports in May growing at the fastest pace in 10 years. However, supply chain bottlenecks and small COVID-19 outbreaks around China's southern ports slowed the pace of exports more than expected. Customs data showed the value of total trade between Australia and China rose 32.6% year-on-year between January and May to US $62.4 billion at $80.7 billion Aussie. Imports increased 33.3% during that period and exports were up 30.6%. High iron ore prices, which hit a record of more than US $230 a tonne last month, drove the increase in trade values at a time when diplomatic relations hit rock bottom and China warned it was seeking alternative markets to fuel its steelmaking industry. China's total iron ore imports, measured by volume, increased 6% to 444.89 million tonnes in the first five months of the year. By value, they rocketed 85.7% to US $40.4 billion. China is largely dependent on Australia and Brazil for its iron ore. And the Australian higher education sector will have lost $3.8 billion in revenue by the end of 2021, with billions more expected to evaporate in the coming years as a pipeline of international students slows to a trickle. The sector has taken a bucketing from closed borders, compounded by a lack of government intervention and strategic planning in getting international students back into the country. There is now, however, a glimmer of hope as some states, New South Wales, South Australia and to a lesser extent Victoria, advance plans to bring small numbers into student-specific quarantine facilities. Experts say the aftershock of the revenue shortfalls will be mostly felt in the research capacity of the universities. And petrol and diesel supplier Ampol is a secret ingredient in a green hydrogen energy startup that will target the $1.5 billion a year remote diesel power generation market, offering the potential for reliable energy that is clean and affordable. Ampol has taken a 20% stake in CSIRO-backed Endure and is a commercial partner for the venture, which is developing renewables-based hydrogen power units that could be used at mines, farms and residential communities that are not connected to the grid. Endure is a child of venture science model of business creation pioneered by CSIRO's technology investment fund, Main Sequence Ventures, which has already given rise to plant-based meat champion Vitude, backed by rich lister Jack Cowan's space startup Quasar. The model starts with identifying a major challenge that offers a commercial opportunity to be solved, then assembling the science capability to tackle it from CSIRO, and introducing a pathway to market through a leading industry player which is involved from the start. Venture investment is injected by main sequence. And at least seven Australian firms are among dozens of companies that were infected with the same ransomware that last week crippled meat processor JBS. JBS was forced to shut down operations in Australia and locally stand down 11,000 employees. JBS also suspended operations in the US after the attack, attributed to Revil Software. Hackers have posted a list of victims of the Revil Software on the dark web, an area of the internet that is hidden from conventional search engines. Australian companies on the list include a law firm, accounting firm, consultancy, an organisation for mental health carers, a chemical packing firm, a liquor group cooperative, an online clothing retailer, and a strategy-focused consulting company. The hackers encrypt company software, files and backups to paralyse a firm's operations. The cyber criminals also issued an ultimatum to these companies, pay up or face having your infernal files published online. If companies refuse to pay, the hackers increase the pressure on firms by leaking bits of their data day by day. They threaten to make the files downloadable and in some cases hold auctions to make the data available to those firms' rivals. 
The dark web listings seem not to include companies that gave in to cyber criminals and paid up. Publishing a company's internal records, including details of employees and customers, puts those people at risk. In some cases, cyber criminals have posted photos of employee passes, credit card images, and passport identification pages. And a renewable solar hydro energy plant will be built on the site of the Liddell coal-fired power station in the Upper Hunter region of New South Wales. Operator AGL has engaged energy firm Raygen to develop the new plant, which will use a mine of mirrors to direct sunlight onto a tower of solar panels, which in turn store energy in water reservoirs in conjunction with batteries. AGL Raygen also revealed plans to build a $27 million plant in northwestern Victoria using the same technology. The plant 2023 closure of the Liddell power station has led the federal government to commit to building a controversial taxpayer-funded gas-fired power station in nearby Kurikuri in the Hunter region. Anetic investigators are reviewing the level of control that Macquarie Group held over its 76% owned subsidiary Newix in the lead-up to the $1.7 billion IPO of the Glamour Tech stock last December. The corporate regulator has issued Section 19 notice to Newix and Macquarie as ASIC considers whether Newix overstated forecasts ahead of its listing in an investigation that has been running for weeks. Newix investors have seen $2.9 billion wiped from shareholders from the peak in January after the data analyst company issued two earnings downgrades. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Neil Littlewood, the CEO of national shipping container company Royal Wolf which has created a bespoke shipping container solution for Griffith University product, investigating the production and use of maggots for medicinal purposes. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.